Take your pew Bible, if you will. If you don't have one with you, we're turning to Acts chapter 14, 8 through 18. I'll be reading from your pew Bible, the English Standard Version. It's on page 923, if that might be of help to you. Acts 14, 8 through 18. Here now the reading of God's word. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Join with me as we pray. Father, it is upon the rock of Christ that we stand here this morning. And it is with joyful hearts that we recognize we can approach your word to hear from you because the ground upon which we stand as believers in Christ does not shift, does not sway, has no cracks or faults in it. Father, we plead your help Uh, We need you to help us to see more clearly uh, your word and its application for us, the implications for us. Father, we need you to gain much glory in our study time here now. Father, we pray that the book would be that which is promised, living, and may it live within us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have. We get to gather uh, with brothers and sisters in the faith from, from around the state, from around the city, from around the country. And we get to sit and we get to listen to your word. What a joy this is. We ask that you would help us now for your glory. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we have been plodding along slowly. Uh, Acts chapter 14 is where we've gotten to in the 28 chapters of Acts. And even this week as I was looking on the calendar and seeing where we're going to get to, uh, we're scarcely going to make it into chapter 16 uh, by the end of the year. 
and then it won't be February till we see it again, so if I have to cast a vote, we'll be in Acts through 2020. Get used to it. Uh, no, I trust that this has been a fruitful time. As we have, have come along here in our study, we're, we're seeing how things are connected. Uh, this is difficult, as I've stated before, to preach in some regard just because of the, the length of the narrative, uh, the, the length of the stories and how they're all connected with one another. And here this morning even, I'm breaking what probably should be the entirety of chapter 14 and 2, uh, just simply because there's so much that is taking place here and there's much we can glean from even in these 10 or so verses. Just to catch us up to where we've been, you might notice in verse 7 how we got to Lystra. Uh, that is, Paul and Barnabas were at Iconium, that's the beginning of chapter 14, uh, things as they typically do in the ministry of Paul uh, don't go all that well and they're basically fleeing from the town. They find themselves in this city of Lystra which is some distance away from Iconium. Uh, there they continue their work. Uh, but really verse 7 we could say or 5, 6 and 7 are the, the prelude for what's happening in verse 8. That is, they had been preaching the word in Lystra. As to how long, we're, we're given no indication. But in the preaching of the word, over these days that they had been there, is where we find ourselves and what's taking place in verse 8. I want to, by way of introduction, just call us to, uh, uh, to remember that all missionaries, every missionary, uh, encounters right and wrong responses to their call of following Jesus Christ. I spent an, almost an hour on the phone this week with one of our missionaries, and we spent much of our time talking about those he's ministering to and ministering even with right and wrong responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, in prepping this, the first person that may jump into your mind as well is Jim Elliott and, and others like him who proclaimed uh, the soundness of Jesus Christ, called others to follow him, and, and there's right and wrong responses. In truth, all Christians in the service of proclaiming Jesus Christ will encounter right and wrong responses. Well, why is that? Because every Christian, whether you're, you're abroad or you're at home, you're in your neighborhood or your workplace, you're taking the gospel of King Jesus to hearts occupied by foreign gods, if you will. Idols, false religions, false hopes. And what you're doing is you're engaging in this massive clash. <laughs> so when they look at you and they say, bug off, dude. Uh, you've just assaulted their castle in foreign occupation. D do you understand the picture of what's taking place here? Uh, this is why there is so much difficulty in evangelism. This is why it's so difficult for us to engage and for in evangelism the wrestling that takes place there. The, the situation happening here with Paul is nothing new. It was nothing new before and it's certainly been nothing new since. Because the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ is taking the gospel of King Jesus, the heavenly gospel, a, a heavenly city, a heavenly nationality. Uh, to a heart that is occupied by foreign gods. Now just by way of help for you as we think about this passage and, and that being what is taking place in many ways here, you might think about some connections from this passage to things we've already studied. 
It maybe comes to mind Acts 3 and 4 where Peter and John went to pray and they met a lame man on the way and all that took place there. Uh, maybe what comes to mind is that passage in, in regards to how the process goes. Uh, this is going to take, what took place in Acts 3 and 4 was a miracle. And then Peter was called to account for it, so he preached. And then they were persecuted. That takes place here as well. Uh, Paul, used by God, miracle, gives a discourse, speaks, persecution. Rinse and repeat throughout the book. Point number one here, if you will, if you're taking notes, is verses 8 through 10. And I've just entitled it, Saving Faith. Saving faith. Notice what takes place here. There's this situation, uh, and what should probably strike you immediately about it is the lack of detail we actually have. Where is Paul preaching? We're not sure. Where is this man sinning? We don't know. Is he close to Paul? Is he far away? We don't know that either. We're giving very little detail, other than the fact that this man is crippled from birth. That is, he's never walked highlighting the magnificence of the miracle that's going to actually take place. He's listening to Paul preaching. That's what he's, Paul's been doing, verse 7 of chapter 14. And as to the interaction, how does Paul see him? He connects his eyes with this man. He looks intently at him and he sees something. What does he see? I have no clue. Scripture doesn't say. Other than the fact that the Holy Spirit enabled Paul at that moment to recognize that this man had the ability to be made well. And the Greek actually implies a much deeper meaning, to be saved. And so he sees him. He looks intently at him. He says in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. He springs up, begins walking, and we never hear from him again. Thank you. It's difficult to understand what's going on here. And yet, is it not the simplicity of what's going on here that highlights the importance of what we should draw? We would love to find out where did this man go. We'd love to know, how do we do that? How do we see people and call them to Jesus Christ and that they have the ability to stand up and walk? That's not the point here. Saving faith in the book of Acts is often accompanied by miraculous healings for the purpose of authenticating the word of the apostles speaking. And that's exactly what takes place going forward. Is that the word that the apostles speaks is uh, opposed. I think it's interesting the detail that we do have. He says in a loud voice. Is that because he wanted him to hear him? I don't know. Is that because he's far away? I don't know. But it reminds me of the raising of Lazarus from the dead by Christ. He calls him out with a loud voice. Lazarus, come forth. And like this man, by the grace of God, there is obedience. Isaiah 35 verse 6. As we're told these things would happen. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I want to just point out a few things that I think might be helpful for us in these first few verses by way of implication for us. And that is, first of all, which we all know but it's helpful to be reminded of, is that the gospel is not contained to a particular group of people. It's for sinners. It's for the spiritually unwell. Now, why do we all say that and why do we need to be reminded of that? Because 
every single Sunday in this city and every other Sunday, there's somebody sitting somewhere that says, I can't go to church today because that's not for me because I haven't done enough to be able to earn the right to sit in that pew. And what will we say? Whether we've got to wheel you in by a wheelchair, whether we've got to lead you in because you're blind, whether we've got to coax you in, the gospel is for every person. Not a particular group of people. So, you know, we aren't, some, we aren't some extra special people because somehow we've gotten dressed up or we have the clothes to get dressed up or because we're not addicted to something or at least nobody knows we're addicted to something or because we've got the right bank account. No, none of those things. Our only claim to any right to be here is because of the work of Christ. Another something to glean would be that the healing of one, el- one unwell from birth reminds us of our all-powerful Father. Is, not, is it not wonderful to remember that we serve a God who can make someone who's never stood on legs, who, there, there's no physical structure to be able to hold him up. In that moment, he has the ability to walk. Another would be that the process of physical healing reminds us of our spiritual healing. You know, every, every testimony here of saving faith is unique. But it all follows the same structure. And and in fact, you can see the structure of how you came to faith in Christ in these first three verses. Notice what takes place. Notice there's a a private moment in the midst of a crowded place. I've heard a number of times, I was at church and all of a sudden it felt like the pastor was just speaking right to me. How did that happen? I had all these people and it was like everybody was not there and all I could hear was this guy proclaiming Jesus Christ and it just pierced my heart. Private moment in the midst of a crowded place. There was a listening. Somewhere, somehow, along the way, you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somewhere, somehow, along the way, you heard the good news articulated of Christ for sinners. You looked. Paul looked Upon this man, this man looked upon Paul. Christ looks upon sinners and draws us to look to him. All of a sudden you saw it. Christ for you. Somewhere along the way there was something loud in the sense that there was a call of the, the external call of the gospel. There was somebody that that stated it publicly. I've got to stay with the L's, so bear with me. There was light feet. There was rejoicing. There was repentance. There was a turning. And this is what takes place with this man. Surely we would understand that his physical healing here is nothing short of miraculous, but certainly falls short of the spiritual healing that is gained through Christ. Brothers and sisters, I I don't know what took place this in your life this week I know it took place in my life this week I know where my heart's been I know the things I've done wrong and not done right or done well and it's a it's an important reminder that we can arise and go to Jesus that's the song that came to mind this morning as I was prepping this come you sinners poor and needy I will arise and go to Jesus he will embrace me in his arms in the arms of my dear savior Oh, there are 10,000 charms. Because of the healing, physical, the spiritual healing we've been given through Jesus Christ, uh, we have the ability each and every day 
to go before that throne of grace and there he stands for us. And let's be quick to do that. Let's look at the next portion of our passage, uh, verse 11 through 18. I've entitled this one, A False Faith. If the verse was a saving faith, here's a false faith. Now Paul is going to preach in Acts chapter 17 in the city of Athens and the process and what he says and the form he takes is going to mirror this one so I won't get too deep into what he's doing here we'll hold that to Acts 17 but I think we can figure we can see a few things Uh, notice uh, the crowds see what takes place they lift up their voice and their voices are lifted up in a tongue that Paul and Barnabas do not understand Lyconia saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And they were, they were polytheistic. They, they believed in the worship of multiple gods. Polytheism. And here's two that they had. Zeus was a god. And why they said Barnabas was Zeus, I don't know. But we recognize why they said Paul was Hermes. And in the mythology of that day, Hermes would accompany other gods wherever they went. Whenever the other gods in their Greek mythology would come to the earth, Hermes would be the voice. Uh, he would be that which interacts and, and speaks on their behalf. And so, Paul, you're the one talking right now, so you're Hermes. And Barnabas, you're Zeus. And it seems to indicate, by the way, the text that all this is happening, and Paul and Barnabas are not around when this is taking place. Because all of a sudden, we have this priest who is wanting to offer these sacrifices. Uh, There's these oxen that are going to be slain. There's these garlands that will probably be put around Paul and Barnabas' neck in worship. And and all of a sudden, they hear of it. Where were they? We don't know. But they hear of it, and and they rush to the place. And there Paul speaks, and he gives them a word. Now this interesting, first of all, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Well, nothing's changed really. The same is today, where we as fallible people like to hear the voice of men, particular men, uh, even women, and, and we think they can do no wrong, they can say no wrong. Probably the most classic case of this would be the Pope. Uh, some would hold to celebrity pastors conservative pastors even, where we see them as more than just men. Here though, you can even see the way Paul and Barnabas deal with this in contrast to what Herod did in Acts chapter 12. You may remember they said he has the voice of a God and he had clothed himself with these robes and instead of refuting it, he accepted it and what he gets is worms. Paul and Barnabas don't do the same. Instead, they rush upon these people, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men, verse 15, of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Our greatest claim, brothers and sisters, is their greatest claim. And that is this. Rescued sinner. That's our greatest claim to fame. I'm just a mere man. Chosen by God, precious in His sight, filled with the Holy Spirit, given a work of proclaiming the hope to sinners not yet rescued and encouraged, encouraging by that same hope those who have been rescued. That's our greatest claim to fame. And that's what Paul and Barnabas did. They tear their garments. It's this expression of profound grief. 
The sin of this city drives them to great grief. And he makes a statement here, and I think this is the, the central portion of this passage, you will, if you will. This is, this is where we would, we would turn to to understand what Paul is doing and, and glean some things for ourselves. He uses uh, God as the creator as his background for why they should turn from doing what they're doing. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Exodus 20 verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. Why are they doing that? Well, his use of creation is to refute polytheism. His use of creation is just to simply say, uh, there is a God who is above all other, quote, gods. Uh, There is one true God. And in short, our use of creation should be known. We should use creation. We should teach our children about creation. It's been said, and I agree, the first 11 and 12 chapters of Genesis, your children should know them by heart if, if they can. But we use creation as a means of starting a conversation about how do we get to this living God? How do we come into right relationship with a living God who created the ends of the earth? Because here, what we have is these people who have a false faith. They have a faith directed toward any other than Almighty God to save them from their sin. They're looking to these gods of of Zeus and Hermes. And people still do the same thing today. Look to things that will save them. Self-help material, medicine, health initiatives, gurus, popularity preachers. Husbands, wives, children. Nothing's really changed. You can fill in the blank. About that which people use, that which we at times are tempted to use to find some means of of saving from the guilt of our sin. Where do you turn when your sin weighs you down? It's important to note. But notice in the midst of Paul's articulating creation and God and his magnificence to be able to put heaven and earth into existence, his power to be able to do so by the speaking of his voice, he highlights a particular character trait of God. And that's what I want to hone in on as we we wrap up our time. Notice he highlights the common grace of God. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. You should jot it down if you're taking notes. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance God is gracious to everyone he is good in a common way to everyone everyone gets the common grace of drawing in air of the blessing of rain of the production of crops as Paul articulates here a satisfying uh, of, of hearts with food, and even gladness. In fact, we we have to recognize, brothers and sisters, that the common grace of God often produces a basic morality. It happens here. 
He calls upon them to recognize the common grace of God and there's a change from this intent upon heinous sin to worship Paul and Barnabas to a less of a sin. They don't, but there's not really any heart change taking place. We should be grateful for that common grace. But we have to also understand that when a person's sinful intentions by God's common grace move from heinous intentions to less intention, to to less of a sin, if you will, that does not mean that they're saved. And that cannot be construed as repentance. Because ultimately, it's not about what we do or don't do. It's about how does one turn from vain living to a living God? That's the question he, he puts to them, or that's the statement he puts to them. Turn from these vain things to a living God. And so the question should be asked this morning, well, how, how do we do that? And in short, hate to disappoint you, you can't. That, that's the irony of what Paul is saying here. Stop, stop worshiping these idols and turn to a living God. And so they don't worship Paul and Barnabas, but they don't turn to a living God. And in short, one cannot of their own merit ever turn to a living God. There's only been one who's been able to do so. We understand this. This is the son of the living God. Matthew 16, verse 13 through 16. This is the the reason why in Matthew 16 or in Mark chapter 8, if you will, uh, the hinge of Mark's gospel lies on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Matthew 16, 13 through 16, the cross-reference to Matthew 8. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's why Christ could say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You you may understand this by way of analogy. It may be helpful to you in that if you have someone who has a lot of, a friend who has a lot of airline miles and they want you to go on a trip and you can, you can get in with them. And so you're, you're going to a destination based not upon your miles but upon theirs. Our ability to come before God is in Christ. We're on his ticket, if you will. By his merit, we can turn to the living God. And it's very, it's very simple. It's as simple as it is for a friend to say, yes, I will go with you to such and such a place. It's as simple as recognizing that it requires faith. Uh, to, to recognize that I've got sinful guilt, vain living. That there is the perfection of Christ. He's not like me. That there's a recognition that if I put my trust in the perfection of Jesus to save me from my imperfection, I will be saved. And God will give the grace to turn from my vain way of living to a life with eternal significance. It's as simple as that. As as easy as it is to say, yes, friend, I'll go with you, we recognize that as the gospel is proclaimed and Christ is held out to the sinner, if you're a sinner here this morning and have not had Christ, the simple answer is, Yes, 
I'll take the perfection of Christ, of which I do not have, and it is on that perfection that I trust I can be in right relationship with Holy God. I'm at the back, most services. There's people to your right and left that know these things. Talk to them. We'd love to help you understand how that can be true for your life. I entitled our sermon this morning, our time, is Personal Faith Affects Public Faiths. The personal faith of this gentleman who is healed affects the public faith of those who are trusting in false gods. Uh, A pastor in Washington, D.C. by the name of Mark Dever has said this. He's probably not original to it, but it's the one I heard it from. Christianity is always personal but never private. Christianity is always personal but never private. Uh, Half the fight is People thinking, our, my faith is private, it's about me. But no, our, our faith is personal. It's one with the holy God through Christ. It, it's a wonderful personal thing. We have a friend of sinners. We, we have this unity with Christ. We have this wonderful ability to approach our Heavenly Father. That's very, that's intimately personal. But it's never to be private. It's never to be lived in the confines of the home. It's never to be lived in the con- on, on the couch where this idea, we're going to do church by myself today because my faith is personal. No, no, no. It's never to be private. And so when we go to work tomorrow, it's not to be, well, I was, a, I was, I was with the saints yesterday and today I'm not, and so my, my, my faith is not to affect other faiths. No, we all know that's the truth, but we have to be reminded of it. That our faith should affect public faiths. Without a doubt, the application here is evangelism. I'm weak in this. Maybe you are as well. If you've been here for a while and you've allowed me to shepherd you for a while, my weakness is probably rubbed off on you. We can grow in this. Where we have the opportunity to affect, affect another faith even this week. Let's be faithful to that. Let's be faithful to do that. And what we might get the glory of seeing, and at times others, at times not, and at times so, is a miraculous healing. A soul being converted. A person changed from one of deadness and lifelessness to that which is entirely alive and in Christ. What a joy it is to be able to be a part of that journey of someone else. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time and we thank you for your word. Father, it strikes me even as I pray that the glory of this word can can never be touched by a particular phrase. It can never be touched by a well-structured sentence. There's nothing I could have said here or done this morning that, that could approximate the glory of this text. Could have gotten, could have done a better job, certainly. Uh, could have said it more accurately, probably. More succinctly, certainly. But Father, you must do the work of setting these texts upon our hearts. It is to you and you alone that we look to, to strengthen our hearts in your word, to feed us from your word. 
to nourish us. And we, we trust that you will do so. Father, as we now partake of this means of grace that is the Lord's table, we trust that you would continue to do the work of strengthening us. Help us to see Christ more clearly as we partake of the cup and of the bread. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen.